Welcome to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand. This show is sponsored by my new book, Recovery. Pre-order your copy by going to russellbrand.com. Now it's time for Under the Skin. Billy Bragg is a musician, author, broadcaster and left-wing activist who fronted the 1980s notorious, famous Red Wedge movement, a collective of musicians who attempted to engage young people with politics and indeed did successfully jammer in there and all. His music blends elements of folk, punk rock and protest songs with lyrics centred on bringing about change and getting the younger generation involved in activist causes. His new book, Roots, Radicals and Rockers, How Skiffle Changed the World, explores how Skiffle paved the way for the new era of guitar-led music from the likes of the Beatles and Rolling Stones. It's wonderful to have you a guest on this show. Thank you. Thank Honoured to have you here. Great to be here, mate. One of the things that, like, that I, like you might want the people, that, I don't know, I suppose you do know, but like, sort of, you'll be, when, you know, and I don't want to preempt it, when you die, I think people will re-acknowledge the significance of you as a figure that spanned an important period of time and has been an important voice in activism and an important... Uh, I suppose, exemplify of folk culture and the power of working people to creatively express dissent. I think this is something that may not be fully appreciated, uh, except posthumously, as is so often the case. The reason I, I, I most wanted to talk to you on Under the Skin is that you've managed to stay true to yourself, but continue to be a creative person and face the kind of uh, attacks that you will continually face if you try to express opinions that are outside the mainstream. In the time that you've been uh, active politically, ha- has this become harder, easier, worse? Uh, well, obviously, it's become uh, it's become easier for people to have a go at you now because of the internet. Because of someone like yourself, I'm sure um, you know you do uh, Twitter and those kind of things, Facebook as a way of sort of getting the word out, you know. And, and obviously, that leaves you open to criticism. Uh, but I think anyone who's done a live gig will know that you have to choose the hecklers you take on. You know, some mm. of them aren't worth taking on. Some of them you can you can sort of talk to them and have a sort of banter with, and others you just got to shut them down. So I, I kind of try and react to it like that. It, it, if you you know if you can't take a bit of stick, you should get yourself a different job. Really, it's sort of like you know I think we all have, we all have to take that kind of criticism. But just you just have to. Uh, Sort of not give in to your own sort of feelings of, uh, you know, cynicism about it and just carry on doing what you're doing. That's the best answer to those people. Hecklers is one aspect of it, but what about the more concerted and sometimes it seems choreographed attempts to shut you down? Like, uh, sort of, how do you've probably faced a lot of media criticism, charges of champagne socialism, those sort of common motifs. How do you navigate that, being a creative person who's an entertainer, so works within the creative industries, but still having a political voice? How do you deal with that? Well, whenever anyone calls me a champagne socialist, I just order more champagne. I think, you know, I don't really care. But they can call me what they like. You know, I know people who've, you know, they can't put down that one nasty snarky remark that someone's made you've got to be able to see past that and think well you know that's just you know that's just one person's opinion how do you alloy the robustness that's required for being a dissident voice in the mainstream with the uh, evident sensitivity you have as an artist well you have to sort of balance up um what you believe in with uh with the sort of 
skepticism that we all have about of the ability to change the world. You know, I'm not, I'm, I don't think for a moment that music can change the world. And I'll, I speak from experience of someone who's had a damn good go at trying to do that. So I'm reconciled to the fact that only the audience can actually affect change. You know, I had a, a, a young singer songwriter I bumped into at a festival a couple of months ago talking about, and I was saying, you know, uh, writing more political songs, and I was giving him encouragement, and he's like saying to me, yeah, but you know, I can't, I can't seem to be out of making change happen. And I had to sort of take him aside and say, look, what you've got to understand is Woody's guitar didn't kill fascists, all right? Mm-hmm. You know, that's not how it works. You know, it, music works. Woody's guitar was a slogan that inspired people to see that slogan. It inspired them to join the anti-fascist struggle, right? And that's how music works. It's not... We don't have agency. We don't change things. Our job is to inspire the audience to go and change things, not least because of the next night we're going to be in another city somewhere else and they're going to be left there in their environment to confront whatever problems they have. Our job is to make them feel for an evening that they're not alone, to sort of recharge their their activism, to sort of try and find a way to sort of overcome their cynicism, the sort of cynicism that we all have, that feeling that nobody else cares about this stuff, that nothing is ever going to change. We have to make them feel that it is possible to have some agency. But you've got to understand that it's ultimately not just their responsibility, but only in practical terms, they're the only people who really can make a change because, A, there's more of them than there is us, and they have the opportunity to go out there in their in their environment and, and, and be that change. Your reference there to Woody Guthrie's famous slogan, this machine kills fascists, I suppose then to what you're explaining is it kills almost the fascist that's within you. Uh, like, what... Um and, and the the what the job of the artist, the conscientious or conscious artist is, is to inspire yeah. that which is already in people. That's right. Yeah. I, I, when uh, I was being much more outspoken a few years ago in politics, for so something that I've like you know taken some time out, and in fact doing this podcast is part of me trying to understand what happened and what I would do differently and what I could do better in the future. Um, one of the things that happened to me on a personal level is that I sort of did a few things that were very very resonant. And it felt like really affected people. And then, like, my personal pattern of egotism and narcissism to some degree started to make me feel like, oh, this is about me. I'm pretty important, yeah. you know. Uh, but one of the things I noticed is like, that you, as like a sort of one of the great archetypes and patriarchs of this kind of thing, were very, very supportive of me. And I remember feeling like, oh, hold on a minute, Billy Bragg's got my back. What's going on there? This is interesting. Because a lot of, I was very surprised that some of the quarters that I was attacked from. Like, like some of the people that said, oh, you shouldn't be saying this, you know. Mm, yeah. What do you feel about that kind of... And thank you, firstly, My thanks pleasure. for that. And, uh, but and, we'll, so and we'll, more power to you for doing that. I mean, basically, what, what, what we want to do is use the platform that we have to try and engage people in something more than just coming to gigs and buying records or, you know, buying... You know, stand-up DVDs, perhaps in your case, or books, you know. You're trying to sort of... Is it, it does our role have any more meaning than this and it's i think it's a constant struggle as an artist to try and reconcile the the power that you have to move an audience with the actual real power that you have or the agency that you have in terms of moving society the two don't measure up together you can be in a football stadium full of people chanting your name but when you actually try and you know sort of take up the banner and lead them to the charge, you're going to find most of them have got day jobs and they can't come with you. So you, you have to understand the, the reality of that because it helps you then to pitch what you're saying in a way that the, the better connects with those people out there. I mean, the most political song I'm singing at the moment is a song called I Keep Faith. 
And depending on how I introduce it, it could be about a relationship or it could be about my faith in the audience's ability to change the world. And that's how I pitch it. I explain why I'm still doing this job, why I keep coming back here, what uh, I'm trying to, to, to put across to them, you know, how I, my sense is that, you know, what we're doing here is we're kind of sort of flushing out our cynicism by coming together like this. Because when I'm, you know, people call me a political songwriter, I'm actually an angry songwriter. If something pisses me off, I write a song about it, I go out there in the dark with everyone, I play my song, everyone claps, I don't feel I'm so bad about it. I don't feel like I'm, I'm alone. And that experience, I'm trying to get the audience to have that experience when they come and all sing a song like this, Power in a Union maybe. You know, they might be in a, in a union in their place or they might want a union in their place or they might have been thinking about that in the old days and, and they see everybody in the hall in their community, maybe their neighbours even, they see them singing and, you know, punching the air and they go away and think, OK, well, you know, maybe there is some, you know, political, still some political energy left. In, not just in the community, but in me. That's probably the most music can do. You know, you can't, you can't change the world by doing podcasts, by writing books. Ultimately, other people have to take those ideas and a, and a majority of people have to get those ideas. And, and that's uh, changing the world is a really slow and boring process. It's about going to meetings where you vote to make sure the little old ladies have enough money to pay their heating through the winter. That's how you really change the world. Yeah, it becomes about bureaucracy, administration and regulation. Yeah, well, we're talking about changing the world. How else do you think we're going to do it? You yeah. I think we're just going to get a storm the winter palace and it's sorted. No, you're no, quite right. Works. I mean, you know, you, you, you might get Corbyn elected, right? But that's only the equivalent of getting him on the pitch. You haven't even got the football in front of the goal yet. You know, that's all those people who got disappointed with Obama, people in America, big college students crying at the T-shirt store when I'm signing their, their records about what happened. I mean, mate, getting him elected is just the start of it. That's not the end of it. You know, Obama is elected... And suddenly we live in a world of possibilities, but none of those possibilities are going to come to anything. If you now go home and put your feet up and think that's it, you've got to get him in the end zone, to use an American football reference. You know, you've got to get him in the end zone and you've got to get the ball to him. You know, and that's, that's hard. It's, you know, it's, that's why I call it the struggle, Russell. It's not, it's not supposed to be easy. So like, it's almost like it, it rec- the, 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 it's constant adversity and constant opposition to the system that's what you like you, you're facing continual resistance and Barack Obama is a, an amazing modern example particularly with what's happened since then is the that you sort of back s- of it yeah yeah and and one of the things that I am surprised by disappointed by frightened of is that the the, the system that housed Barack Obama Obama now houses Donald Trump. There's no doubt that he's worse, certainly visibly more worse, says much more terrifying things. But the system itself is able to continually house them. But to, to, to refer to your earlier um, statement where you said that there is a limit to what we can do and to what we can achieve because ultimately politics boils down to little as old artists, ladies and that. As artists. As artists, as, as artists. artists. Yeah. Mm, right, because That's those what are. We're but, about but, now. Yeah, we are actually, we're mate. But we're also from saying, from your perspective and my perspective, the platform that we have earned is, a, is as artists. Artist. But we are, I suppose, one of the reasons that you, in your way, and for a lot longer, and me, uh, briefly faced uh, blowback and consequences, is because we tried to break out of that yeah. role and to try to define to a degree that the role of the artist isn't apolitical. There is no such thing as apolitical. If you're an artist that doesn't speak socially conscientiously, that is a political statement. What you're saying is I am alloyed and allied to the system as it is, to materialism. This is Yes and no. Whether or not consciously Russell, Yes and no. Life, we'll go on in. life ain't all about politics. 
thank heavens for that. You know, I've toured with bands that were all about politics and they bored the tits off me and I like politics. So life is really about a number of different things. There's space, room for politics in it. And politics is important and engagement is important. But, you know, my, my prior aim with an audience, first and foremost, is to entertain them. Yes. Okay? You entertain them, that's how you get their attention. When you get their attention, if you can make them laugh a bit, you soften them up. And then it's possible to bring in those things that you really, really care about. Whereas if you go out and try to hit them from the very, very beginning, you're, the chances are you're going to really be preaching to the converted. I don't like that phrase. I don't believe that sort of thing exists. But as a, an example of, of, you know, if you just talked about politics all the time, of course you would have an audience that come and agree with your politics. Whereas I think yeah. in order to reach beyond that, you've got, to, you've got to have other criteria. So politics is just one aspect of what I do. It's an important aspect because it's kind of my USB. Yeah, yeah, USP, in fact, not USB. That's a yeah, USB. That's them yeah, little I, sticks. I know, yeah, I've got one of those. So you download well. stuff onto. Well. But my USP, thank you very much. Yeah. Um, so that that you know, but I would I would hate just to be defined by by politics. You know, I did a gig a couple of years ago at the uh, Roundhouse, mm. and my sound man was sort of packing stuff up on stage when one of the the security guy said to him, oh, I've quite enjoyed that. And he said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, Billy Bray, I just thought it'd be all politics, but actually it was quite entertaining. And that's really, that's who I want to be. I want to be that guy. I don't want to be Leon Bloody Trotsky with a guitar. No, absolutely. But, but, Billy, one of the things you said there about, like, you know, in the end it comes down to old ladies and their heating mm. bills, but, like, that is part of politics. But part of it is about, you know, even if you... I'm not even talking about radical or leftist politics. I'm talking about current mainstream politics. It's, it's sourced from somewhere. Donald Trump being the president of the United States comes from somewhere. Yeah. People have already been mobilised yeah. to a certain way of thinking. So what's the role of the artist now, then? Is the role of the artist to oppose Donald Trump and try and get him thrown out? Or is the role of the artist to join the dots in a way that people begin to understand how we got to this point so that we might be able to change things by changing the way that we approach this stuff. Because there's a big... You know, Trump isn't the problem. Trump is just the, the boil on yeah. the arse of, of, of sort of neoliberalism. Yes. Because we've come to a situation where um, everything has been put down to uh, the, the market to mm. decide, you know. The, the ultimate, to me, the, the politics of the 21st century are really going to be about how we hold those in power to account. Mm. Accountability, I think, is an absolute key because it seems to me that freedom is made up of, of three aspects. Liberty, the right to express your view. Equality, everyone's right to express their view. Uh, their, their view. And uh, thirdly, accountability, the ability to hold those in power to account. And if you don't have all three of those... You're not really free. You know, a lot of people think it's just liberty, that that's it, you know, freedom of speech. That defines freedom. It doesn't. Equality is absolutely key to that. But accountability, that is really the biggest one. And if you look at the history um, of, you know, in Britain, for instance, the history of the labour movement, it, it starts with... Uh, the trade unions forming to hold the bosses to account, to hold them to account to get better wages, to get shorter hours. You know, accountability was absolutely key to those. And really, if socialism is about anything, it's about holding people to account. It's about holding the, the corporations to account. How do we do that? And this has another interesting side to it, which is kind of like the English tradition of dissent, where we, in probably I would argue the central tradition of, of Englishness, if there's such a thing as Englishness, is a dissenting tradition. It's Magna Carta, you know, the unaccountable power of King John. It's the Reformation, the unaccountable power of the Pope. It's the Civil War, again, the unaccountable power of, uh, the absolute power of the monarchy. 
and then the Chartists trying to get into Parliament and the suffragettes. And now that, that unaccountable power, that absolute power, has been transferred to the corporations. So how do we call on that tradition to focus on accountability? One of the things we have to do is we have to make a, a decisive break with the language of Marxism, which has other priorities, and focus, I think, focus more on ideas of how we hold uh, the... Uh, the, the market to account because over the last 30 years with the introduction of neoliberalism what what the real agenda I think of neoliberalism is not just been tax cuts it's been to allow those in power to shirk responsibility for the way society goes by saying the market decides mm. leave it to the market that's yes. the market will do that yes. what has happened is they've let that go so far now that everything is down to um the decision of the market, which means, you know, whatever is popular is, that's it, that's the thing. Now it's actually come that the, 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 the free market uh, mentality is being used on reason and truth. That's what we're seeing with Donald Trump. If this uh, opinion is the most popular, it becomes truth. And that's kind of like the ultimate extension of a, of a system that was a, initially put in place to avoid responsibility by elected officials, to have a democratic society that once people were elected, you could throw off all ideas of accountability. Margaret Thatcher just say, well, this is the market. This is why we have to close down your job, mate, because the market says you, you, you don't have any reason to exist. And this, to me, is against, runs contrary to human nature, to human uh, sense of... of, of Worth and of uh, uh, really, you know, the grace of humanity is not to be judged by by uh, you know the values that you have, the intrinsic values that you have as a person can't be weighed uh, in in terms of the market. It doesn't really work like that. Human uh, condition doesn't work like that, and we've we've allowed this to go so far now that truth itself has become, you know, like uh, up and down on the stock market. What's true today? Well, this is peop enough people believe this, so it must be true today. And what's going to be true tomorrow? Well, something else. We'll see what's on the truth stock market. You know, it's ridiculous. That's a very beautiful speech. Uh, but I wish I, I could make it rhyme. I'd write a song about it. <laughs> <laughs> that horse has bolted. Now, Billy, right, there's a few things in there. One of them, we said, like, uh, that truth has become sort of weighed out, like, you know, like, like it, as a natural extent, as a natural conclusion of that idea. In a way, postmodernism is about the sort of shifting value of meaning and the role of language. Now, I would say that whilst, again, Trump is a more obvious example of this phen phenomenon, I'd agree with your earlier comment that he is like a, a, a boil on the arse of an already existing phenomenon. And it would be a pity if the result of uh, like uh, uh, of the tr Trump administration, even if it visibly and demonstrably fails, would be a return to what preceded it, because yeah. what preceded to it preceded it led to it. Now, when you said that thing about Marxism there and the language of Marxism, and like I, I presume that you mean that Marxism was conceived in an environment of post-colonialism and early and industrialization. No, no, no. What I mean is that if you want to talk to people about. Uh, class and stuff like that. It just doesn't resonate anymore. People don't have those same distinctions now. Don't you know, they? No, I don't think they do. I mean, this is the problem, though, Russell. The language of Marx doesn't resonate with people anymore, but the problems that he identified have not been resolved. Like alienation yeah, 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 and the role yeah, of... Poverty. 
Poverty. inequality, you know, all those things have not been resolved. They've not even been really properly addressed. But the language in which the left has traditionally done it in the 20th century... Which is class. Well, which is the language of Marxism, you know, the language of sort of... Is that uh, language class, though? I, I, just yeah, well, I don't know much the, about it. In terms of political, yeah, everything is based around class. Oh. And now people say, oh, now it's, you know... Well, now people want to talk about identity politics. Class is of identity. Yeah, that obvious. I mean, you know, I, don't, I, just, I hate to say this, but <laughs> class politics is identity politics of a, of a type. But let's not let's not get that into that argument. But basically, the way that the world was configured in the 20th century comes apart in 1989 when the Berlin Wall comes down, and that whole way of of holding our of framing our politics, in which if we sat and had a talk about socialism, most of the people listening would broadly have an idea what that meant. That's gone, I think. You know what what. You know how you define socialism. You know it's a it's a form of sort of like organised compassion, as far as I can see. Yes, socialism. yes. If you don't, if it's not, if it's not a form of organised compassion, you're doing it wrong. You know? When you talk about this, like the, a, a requirement for revision of Marxist language, precisely. No, no, uh, I'm not talking about. I'm talking about a completely new language. A completely okay? new language. Ways to articulate I agree with you. Things, right? and I, I agree and with that's you. What, that's where poets come in. And, yeah, poets do need to come in because gig. I think that's that part the, of our gig to the try and come up with this language. The reason I think it's a pr- necessary is because it's a, a cold language, devoid of compassion and empathy. Scientific language. It's it a is scientific a scientific language. language. It doesn't, doesn't now, relate to people's. It doesn't resonate. Experience. And the extraction no. of compassion, empathy, and kindness from the political conversation is precisely the problem. Now we have to find a way. I think of countering one of the things you said earlier, which I have to agree with from from, from my limited personal experience. That ultimately politics becomes about organisation, administration. But we do need to find a way of aligning it yeah. with heart, the emotion yeah. of politics, well, the meaning well, of politics. Is, you know, this is interesting because, like I was just saying just now, socialism. It is not really, you know, not really worth the name if it's not a form of organised compassion. Mm. You need those two things together. You can't just leave compassion to the market. You can't leave compassion to charity. Ultimately, in order to be the most effective, it has to be organised in some way, like a welfare state. Yeah. Because, you know, where everyone pays their fair share and everyone gets what they what they need in terms of the basic fundamentals for life, education, housing, and uh, and obviously health care as well. You know, and, and, you know, some of us are old enough to have been privileged to live for a period where that was seen as, as the consensus opinion. Sadly, that's no longer there. But, but you can't have socialism without organization you can't have a fair society without organization it has to be it has to be organized the the compassion has to be uh, you know able to put into a you know come to to bear on a system that has agency on people's lives and that does re- require considerable organization we're going to build houses for people you can't just say, "Well, perhaps we'll build an house." There's a space over there. Build an house there. You've got to think about on a on a on a. I'm feeling really compassionate. Let's build a house in a state over there. That's yeah, marshland. That's right, yeah, yeah, but exactly. no, come on. Who's exactly. to say marshland can't be a nice exactly. foundation? Exactly, it's got to be organised. So there's you, marsh you, in my you cellar. Can't, you can't. You can't. There were slow worms living there. <laughs> Have you ever been to Beckton? <laughs> no, I haven't. Beckton's on one? a marsh. Yeah, my my brother's a bricklayer, and when they were building bricks down there, they had to have anti-malaria tablets because there was so much. Uh, so much gnats down there and mosquitoes. Billy, one of the things I feel like from my... Like, when I feel like I had a little bit of front-line experience doing the trues, mouthing mm-hmm. off publicly, getting a bit yeah, of traction, being all over mate. You had a lot of front-line I had a proper crucifixion, did, didn't you I? You did, did. And I think the thing that was interesting for me for that was you didn't really come at it from an ideological sort of basis. So I was thinking to myself, you know, mate, that's like running around a dodgem track, you know, with dodgem cars are running around. You're not in a dodgem car. You Which I've also done. <laughs> <laughs> Naked. But um, the... the 
uh, you know, I thought to myself, boy, you know, because I thought what you were doing was really great because you were trying to, as I say, make sense of what was happening and where we were. I was were. all about the feeling. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. And trying to sort of like articulate that and put that forward. And I thought your enthusiasm was great. I thought what you were saying was great. But I thought without the ideological structure around that, you're bound mm. to come up to with, very soon with a lot of contradictions. Well, yes, I did. And like, but one of the problems is, of course, that it's very difficult in a way, for, not for everybody, but for some people, it's difficult to get access to that information, particularly as I'm a person like, sort of like I'm from an ordinary background. My inclinations are artistic and creative. I'm an entertainer, egotist and all that. Like, so it's very, both of those things. And it's difficult, really, to like, you know, where are you going to get that information? Here's Who's going to teach it. you? The thing I remember most about it, the one moment I thought you fell down and I was like, mate, question time. When that bloke said to you, why don't you go into politics? You remember? Yeah, yeah. Him you and should Farris. have said to him, politics, politics is too important to leave to politicians, mate. Right? It's not, that's what they want to say to you. You want to talk about politics, go and put a suit on. Go and be like, you know, what's his name? Reese Mogg. Go mm. and be like that. Well, it shouldn't be like that. We should all be able to, able to talk about yes. politics. And, you know, and don't you think there's enough sort of, you know, sort of middle-aged white men in Parliament anyway? You know, you should have nailed him on that one. And if you'd have been knocking around with the rest of us, you'd have had that one there, bang. And it's, it's because you didn't have a few of those sort of like knock it out the, the, um, the stadium answers that I, really con- I was really concerned for you. Because I thought you were putting yourself in a position where you could be uh, attacked and some of the sort of standard pat shield answers that we have that right. we deal with those things you didn't have them because you hadn't come from those conversations yeah but because it, I had you know? like well yeah that's true because there's not really a mentor tradition no no no, no there's, there's not there's not really not. like there's people not. aren't reaching out I and connecting yeah. people aren't getting it into schools in grades and essays you put yourself right out there you put yourself right out yeah, there yeah I just I, fronted I it that. out on I what I had I respected that I respected that but I really show off skills so you've got to start somewhere. Which I know? still have. <laughs> Which I still have. Still in my locker. Still in my locker for when I know, need them. That's, that's what's changed. You see, if you'd have been doing that in the 80s, there would have been a, 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 a framework around that discussion already. What, you and Weller would have turned up, <laughs> put an arm around me? All right, son, what coming in? We no, have, someone asked you that on question time. We right. would have done our best. <laughs> we, were, we were all in it together, though. That's the thing. Back then, we were all in it together. Well, you were out on your own, right? Because you were running contrary to what was going on at the time, which at the time, it's changed now. That's Brexit, a bit, isn't it? Brexit has changed it big time. But at a time, it was still a time where people were whatevs about politics, mm. where you had decided to make a stand on that. And that's what was, I was so impressed about, that you were willing to do that. Whereas in the... What would happen in the 1980s is from the very first time, if you'd have been in a band, say, in the 80s, to be in a band was like, if this is something from the 60s, 70s and 80s, you were kind of, because music was belonged to us and not our parents' generation, to be a musician, you were part of an alternative society, right? Mm-hmm. And when you were interviewed by some heavyweights at the NME, you needed to be able to articulate the, your views in the perspective of that alternative society. Where did you stand on those heavyweight things of the day? So from very early on, we all had experience of talk, dealing with these things and reading other people's responses so that we were able to sort of who, look like, at, Who were you checking? Oh, you know, Strummer I was checking. I was checking Weller when he was in the jam. You know, anybody, really. But it, didn't, it wasn't just the punk bands. It was all bands. You know, they had a view on drugs. They had a view on, uh, on sexism. They had a view on racism. And you could, from that, as a young person, whether you were a musician or not, you could... Looking at their perspective, build your own worldview, and so I think that's not there anymore. So for you to come from outside and put yourself into that position, in some ways, you kind of missed what would have been the alternative of a a sort of a, uh, I suppose, like a a 
an activist apprenticeship in which you'd have seen other people already had that argument thrown at them and realised what they came back with and been able either to follow them or construct your own smart response. In a way that you've seen people deal with hecklers at gigs when you were coming mm-hmm. through as a comedian, right? You yeah. stood in the wings there watching other people and you think to yourself... Oh, I see how they've done that. I see, and you'd, you'd, have, you'd have had more of that. And that's the one thing that you lacked. For all your belief and your ability to put it across, when, when you came up against people like that guy on Question Time, there's simple ways of just dealing with those and getting on to the point that you wanted to make and shooting those kind of people down. And that's what I was concerned for you. Yeah, but thanks for saying that's really kind of you. But uh, like also, like it became quite a personal thing in that, you know, on a sort of a slightly perhaps more essential and personal level I'm motored to a degree by an individualistic philosophy that I've been inculcated in from the cradle I'm not growing up with like clear ideas of community I come from uh, uh, Essex like white fly Essex single mum you know like like sort of I'm not come from community values older males educations working men's clubs it was more of a cultural thing Russell it was more like um, you know you read the enemy every week and this kind of stuff was in there every week you know, that's gone now. That whole sort of like sense of music as being an alternative. Do you remember when comedy was an alternative? Yes. Yeah, it's kind of gone now. And everyone's at Wembley Stadium doing great, yes. big, you know, huge gigs. And that, that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you as an individual couldn't deal with those things. No. But there were some, you know, there was some schooling you could have picked up in the old days. There's no doubt that I've got, uh, you know, had and continue to have a lot to learn. And part of doing this podcast well, we is to, to learn those things. Trust that's me, we all do. Thanks, we Billy, do. for saying that. But one reason I'm doing this podcast is to learn that. It's precisely. Mm. why I want to talk to you on this podcast is exactly for that kind of information but one of the things I would also say is that the environment that we're operating in has changed you make that sort of that nod to like the the continued commodification of music but we were speaking before about football how the same things happened all forms of entertainment are now seen through the lens of what is its market value as you were mm. talking mm. about there now what, what, one of the things I like you said the language of Marxism has become if not redundant somewhat blunt, blunted but the problem it, it seeks to address still yeah, exists, yeah. poverty, yeah, yeah. inequality. And now the, one of the things that I, I found in my personal experience, there's two things I'd like you to comment on. One is a lot of the people that are occupying that space, I'm not talking about yourself, I'm talking more about sort of broadsheet, left-leaning world. It seems to me they don't like working-class people. They don't like them. Yeah. They don't like poor people. And yeah. it's not coming from a sense of personal, deep, visceral connection and passion. It's an intellectual exercise in sort of counter, counter-cultural well, rhetoric. You've got to remember in, in the... In the uh, in the Marxist uh, uh, pantheon, it was the working class who were going to save us, right? You know, it was the working class who, who, who you know, ver- veracity was only really inherent within the working class. They they had the, they had the understanding and the truth, you know. And then the minor strike happened. And you go to South Wales and you meet the most racist, sexist geezers you've ever met, uh-huh. and you're on, and they're on our side, you know. And you're like, hang on a minute, this is this can't be right. Those people who are talking about you know, that, that, you know. I think they're they're disappointed to find out that working class people have reactionary ideas the same as middle class people and upper class people. They're disappointed that the the working class no longer support the Labour Party. That they're more likely to vote for UKIP. And rather than try and analyse why that might be, why the the uh, mainstream left have failed to connect with uh, with with working class people, they'd rather demonise them. I'm not really into that. You know. Some of my mm. relatives, all of my relatives, you know, are not not UKIP supporters, but certainly come from that same yes. what you would define as sort of like, you know, white flight 
Essex yeah. people. You know, that's my, that's my family, and I and I know that, like in every family, there's some some wrongings. But broadly speaking, they, the values that they have are still the values that I have. When you were doing stuff, for, like you did a lot of work with the miners, isn't that right? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, was that an, broadly speaking inspiring or uh, an awakening? Yeah. How did you? What it was, was that it like? Was, it was an awakening on a number, number of levels. I mean, you know, uh, the very first one, the very first gigs I did in the in the coal fields, there was a very uh, old miner guy called Jock Purden who was opening for me and he sat on a chair and sang a cappella with his hand over his ear and I was the little punk rocker from London you know come up to tell him all about the clash and everything like that and old Jock's songs were more radical than mine what, what culture was he drawing on? He was a folk singer. Basically. They were yeah. folk yeah, songs. Yeah, traditional folk songs, yeah. And they were kind of songs of struggle and uh, songs of, you know, mining disasters and stuff like that. And I felt British. Really, yeah, 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 oh, yeah, yeah. British well, songs. Yeah, that, yeah. So there's a tradition of there British is 100%, folk. Yeah, yeah, 100% radical, of radical songs. You know, there are a lot of them out there. And I, I, I kind of like was a bit embarrassed to, to follow him, really. And he was great because he kind of said, made it explicit to me, he said, look, son. Whatever music you play, by standing on this stage with me here with the miners, you're part of that tradition now. That part of that tradition I've just expressed, you're part of that now because you're standing with these people. So don't worry about it. Just go and do what you do. Do you feel that now that you're part of that tradition? Well, I mean, I'm I'm not of the tradition. I mean, I do. I get to play a lot of folk festivals, which is absolutely brilliant because. Uh, folk festivals, they don't mind if you grow old. In fact, they actively encourage you to grow old. You know, a bit of grey hair, you know. They don't mind a bit of that. So, uh, and they're quite open-minded at folk festivals. So uh, I've been very fortunate in that the, the folk audience has taken on board what I do. But I'm not of their tradition. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of part of it, but I'm not, I didn't come from it. didn't come through it. So I, I still think of myself as a sort of little punk rocker, really. You know, I'm still sort of that bash-em-out brag guy who plays electric guitar and no frills. Sure. And in terms of the classification in, 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 in strictly musical terms, obviously punk is a, a, a strong determinant, but yeah. in, but I mean, this is a Jesus Christ, but it wasn't and isn't punk itself no. a folk movement yeah, in yeah, that it is reactionary it is, yeah, yeah no it's it's in that it came from people you know self uh, the great thing about punk uh, which is what is so similar similar with skiffle which i've just been writing about is it's something that was self-empowering you know you decided to do it it was you know you were going to make the music that you wanted to make you were going to have you know it's going to be your voice that was heard rather than uh, let someone else say things for you and you buy their records you were going to do it yourself here's three chords and now form a group you know that's that's absolutely key uh, in in the idea of uh, the do-it-yourself idea of punk rock, which which I still you know still inspires me today. When you're writing, like your book is an anthropological history, is it in a way? Roots, radicals, yeah, rockers. It's kind of like trying to context. It's not just about a musical thing that happened in 1956-57. It's trying it's trying to put it in the context of the first generation of British teenagers, and and look at that that moment and and see how. Things that we now take for granted, like the guitar, was introduced into British pop music because before Donegan played, there were no British pop stars playing guitars. You know, it was just not. It was guitar was a music of uh, sort of uh, singing cowboys and blues singers and calypsonians. That right, that yeah. hadn't happened. Donegan yet. was the first guy to play the guitar, British guy to play the guitar, getting the charts. Mm-hmm. So it's a kind of key moment, and and it's also the first generation of. Um, uh, British kids born during the war from 1940 onwards, what's significant about that generation is they weren't conscripted. So when they got to 15, 16, instead of being hanging on to their childhood, the boys, before they went, were conscripted at age 18, all of a sudden they were, there was nothing from, to do, to go, to, to be. So they're working, they're leaving school at 15, they've got money, 
So they're trying to identify themselves, and the way they do it is to pick up the guitar and say that this is a break with the past. We are a new generation, and we're going to play this African-American music, which is basically what Skiffle is. It's basically Lead Belly's music. And so define themselves against what had gone before, and it's the very beginning, Skiffle, of the first cracks of the generation gap. What we came to see is that huge generation gap in the 60s begins with, with, weirdly enough, Lonnie Donegan having a hit with Rock Island Line in January 1956. What, in essence, do you think was in the music of Lead Belly that spoke to this generation? I think it was authentic. I think it was... Uh different from the contrary to everything that was being played in the charts at the time which was very saccharine you know the music for children was you know how much is that dog in the window and I think it was this is kind of the weird thing these kids had grown up in a time of great deprivation you know uh, rationing doesn't end in the UK food rationing doesn't end until 1954 so it goes on for nine years after the war and suddenly it ends and they have the opportunity to 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 try and make the future happen and they see um, the guitar as the key to to forcing the future to happen on their terms by playing music that they want for themselves and conversely they go back to the blues to do it but it kind of allows them to escape the post-war period by building this kind of sort of artistic bridge to the future which eventually becomes so huge that it crosses the Atlantic and goes to the top of the American charts. You know, the Beatles, the Stones, all those bands, Manfred Mann, the Tremolos, Van Morrison, Bowie. They're all skiffle kids. Why are you drawn to this period? What is it that's attracted this this transition from sort of blues music into skiffle, into like rock and roll and pop music? What is it that's attractive to you? Well, little bits I knew about it before I wrote the book, it seemed to me to be very similar to punk rock. And... I spoke to a few people who were there at the time and the feeling that they had seemed like the feeling I had when I first saw The Clash but sort of times a hundred because they're coming from nothing. Uh. They're coming from, you know, not being able to go in a sweet shop and buy what you want until you're 14 years old. <laughs> so can you imagine what it's like to suddenly be able to buy Rock Island Line and buy a guitar and play music and do what you want to do? So, And in some ways, Skiffle is a reaction against the BBC. When, when Rock Around the Clock is a hit in 55, the BBC barely play it. And rationing, as I say, these kids are growing up with rationing. It's almost like they're saying to the BBC, you think you're going to ration rock and roll after all the shit we've been through and you're going to ration rock and roll? Forget it, because we're going to buy guitars and we're going to play this stuff ourselves. And they kind of, they go out almost in spite and start playing in church halls and scout huts and school gyms. And, and you know, that's where it, the whole guitar in British pop starts with. And it's like a very working class thing as well, because middle class kids tended to stay... College or university, and then going to professions where earning was deferred until they were adults, you know, like the law or medicine. Mm. Whereas these kids were leaving school, they're 15, they're earning sometimes more money than their parents, and particularly the young women. Because the young women are kind of the drivers, weirdly, the drivers of the whole scene because they are. They've got this money, they've got this spending power, but they've got, they haven't got their own social space. Mm. They can't go into a pub on their own with their mates. They don't want to go in the tea rooms their parents took them to. So they, they colonise these brand new cappuccino bars that are sprouting up around here where we are in Soho. And these are really um, modern 
places because because they're they're cappuccino. They're not looking to where most popular culture is coming from, which is Los Angeles and New York. They're looking to Rome and mm. they're looking to Paris. So these young women, by going into the cappuccino bars, are, are making a very sophisticated statement and saying that they're more like sort of Gene Seberg than they are Marilyn Monroe. You know, they're they're again breaking with their parents' culture. And it's in the cappuccino bars where the young women congregate, where eventually the young men with the guitars come out of the scout huts and go into the coffee bars to the two eyes just around the corner here on uh, Old Compton Street, and that's where British rock and roll starts. Really? Everything comes out of, uh, yeah, even the Beatles, everything. Everything up till punk, really. Everything up till punk. And, And sort of understanding that, the significance of it, but not really understanding, and I'm talking to me personally now, how it started... Where did it come from? What was the, you know... Because if, if people write about Skiffle, they often just write about Lonnie Donegan having a hit with Rock Island Line like it was a singularity. It just happened. Now, we mm. all know nothing just happens. No. So I wanted to try and write something that explained where it come from. So in the book, Rock Island Line gets in the charts in Chapter 13. It's a 26-chapter book. So it's trying to contextualise that period. You know, it's an absolute key period in the development of British youth culture and British post-war culture. Yes, and, you, and the, the social conditions are impoverishment you mentioned yeah. censorship yeah. rationing yeah. and a lack of social space yeah and a, and a whole a whole new definition of people that aren't children or adults they've yeah. never really been there before i mean my father was in the previous generation of teenagers uh, and well donnegan actually was in the previous generation of teenagers and they lived through the war they were evacuated my father was in the previous generation he left school in 1939 age 15 i mean you know when he was growing up he listened to english music ate english food and wore english clothes end right. of <laughs> end of and so did his dad yeah. you know and that's how it was this generation the skiffle kids if we can call them that were a complete change of that they were they were defining themselves they were self empowering their own culture, and that had never happened before. Before culture, musical culture had been handed down from Tim Pan Alley. Mm. So Donovan, uh, Donegan rather, by going to, you know, the Library of Congress archives in the American Embassy here in London and borrowing records from the American, uh, the U.S. Information Service, was accessing something that mainstream culture couldn't find. In, in some ways, you know, the, the the Simon Cowles of the day was suddenly surpassed by by guys going and playing these old blues songs. It took them. 18 months to invent Tommy Steele so they could get power back again. But in that period, in between, it was like it was just like punk. It How was, fascinating. Yeah, so yeah, there's yeah, that yeah. continual pattern of authentic emergence of new and necessary voice yeah. to... Uh, Working-class kids. Yes. Well, you know. And, and the, you know, the old thing about punk, about being a DIY music... You know, these kids were making their own instruments with a tea chest, a broom pole and a bit of string, you know. Right, yeah, I've seen and, them, the yeah, yeah, quarry men exactly, doing all that yeah. stuff. And, and also, you know, the idea of punk as being, you know, here's three chords and now form a group. That's exactly what Skiffle was as well. So it was very, very similar, so, but just 20 years what before. What other comparisons are there in terms of the social conditions that it emerges out of? Because, I mean, a lot of other positive things happened, didn't they, in that immediate post-war they did, they period? Did. You'd the see, welfare yeah, state, yeah, NHS. Yeah. So there's sort of a people, these are other political in, yeah, people. In 1955, you've got uh, Look Back in Anger. Is, uh, is, you know, the, John Osborne. The, yeah, John Osborne's play comes out in 1955. That, again, is part of the breakdown. Then you've got Richard Hamilton uh, inventing uh, pop art. In the in the, the um, uh, 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 sort of East London Museum, what's the name of that museum at uh, not Bethnal Allgate East? Can't think of the name of it now. But he kind of he kind of invents pop art, um, and then you've got ITV comes on on stream in 1955 as well, and that brings a whole different aspect of British culture to the fore because because they're um, b- before that the BBC mediated all culture. 
Mm. Everything you heard, unless you were going to the theatre every night or you were going to, to ballet or stuff like that, you were just living at home and the radio was your main source of entertainment. Everything was mediated by the BBC. So that monopoly's broken in 55, which is like six months before Rock Island Line comes out. And, yes. and ITV, because they're you know, ratings led, they're bringing in much more popular culture. So yes. they kind of undercut the BBC's idea of you sitting in your drawing room listening to culture, uh-huh. with you sitting in your living room listening to what you and I know as telly. Yes, yes. So right. all that all that's in the in the sort of year before Skiffle suddenly goes kabam. I understand. So right, but the, the spirit of Skiffle, as I understand it, is one of sort of fun and emergent and somewhat naive sexuality. The punk movement that which you say there are that shares evident comparisons, much more rage. So while there are like comparisons to be made, there's also a distinction. I wonder if this sort of pattern of commodification of indigenous products, i.e., uh, Donegan becomes. Tom- Tommy Steele, yeah, yeah, yeah. repackaged, sold back. By the time it reaches punk, it's all, and, and like, you know, the relationship between punk and hip-hop music, yeah, for example, yeah. it's like these folk movements have to become more and more authentic and more jagged, more hard-edged, so that they can't be so uh, brilliantly emulated, repackaged, repurposed, well, sold I think, back. I think it's more like the, 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 you know, the best music always made by people who are marginalised. At the moment, that would be undoubtedly in this country will be grime. You know, because that community is the most marginalised. You know, they, they don't get invited to write uh, thought pieces in the in the broadsheet newspapers like mm. a lot of mainstream youth do now. They, you know, the only way they've got of getting in your timeline and my timeline is making some kick-ass music. And that's, yes. that's so so grime to me. I mean, I know it don't sound like it and it don't look like it, but I think grime is in the same social space that Skiffle was in in 1957. It's that community talking to itself and everyone else around it by, by making its own culture and mm. not acquiescing to saying, mm. yeah, I'll go on Facebook and do this or, yeah, I'll go on Twitter and do this. You know, and punks like that, hip-hop was like it. In some ways, uh, you know, the folk revival was a bit like that. It's where people take control of their own culture again. Yes, it is, Rather than it? accepting what's being handed down from, from the mainstream. So it's the sort of creative uh, kind of like through creative means reclaiming space or sometimes just claiming space voices that are not being heard yeah. for a, a language that's yeah. not I mean, yet been written we did, I think it's the way we did things in the in the 20th century music in the 20th century was our only social medium and it had to encapsulate everything so as a result it had something for 8 year old girls and 60 year old geezers you know teeny bop and, and the old blues and everybody in, in between and in many ways the music you listened to dictated the way you dressed, it dictated the places you went to, it dictated the people you hung out with, it dictated the people you didn't like. Mm -hmm. You know, it was... Our, the only, you know, it was a universal social medium, although we didn't think of it in that way as it yeah. was back then. And so consequently, it had to also encapsulate all of human experience, including politics, which is where the idea of politics and music come together in that way. It's not, it's not something that always fits together and always has fit together. But during that period, particularly in the 1960s, when... when uh, Pop music was a universal social medium for young people. In fact, it was the vanguard social medium for young people up until really the end of the 20th century. Politics played an important role as the spear tip of that at certain key moments. Not always, and not not predominantly, um, and very seldom absolute popular mainstream. But every now and then, you know, and it goes, and it's not just sort of Bob Dylan type stuff as well I mean you think of people like Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder mm. writing you know Mr Know-It-All and those kind of you know inner city stuff mm. uh, all that all those those aspects now now in some ways that if a 19 year old person is angry with the world 
if you if he or she wants to make their views known, they don't have to do what I did. They don't have to learn to play guitar, write songs, and do gigs because that was the only medium available to me. Now there's lots of different ways to express your views. So as a consequence, music has kind of lost that vital aspect that it had, apart from in those places where the voices are still marginalised, like grime, where that vitality is there. Instead, now it's Taylor Swift. Yes, you know, it's it's you know it's your man Sheeran. That's the that's the kind of mainstream. But possibly there is a continuing trend of commodification. Like in each of those instances, you know, we are now in a position where we can look at what happened with Skiffle, what it ultimately became and how it permutated, how we can with punk and how rapidly that happened with punk. And similarly... It was the same with Skiffle. Eight yeah, months. Really, like, we've turned that round. Yeah, yeah. And like the same with uh, the same with uh, with well, hip hop. With anything popular, will ultimately become commodified. You know, exactly, precisely exactly. because of what you said yeah. earlier in this interview about this. If the market, which is sort of presented oddly, kind of like a deity, like yeah. it is a potent yeah. and no, uh, no, it's the, natural, it's the natural scheme of things. That's mm. the thing. It's an, everyone thinks the market is the natural scheme of things. It's totally not. But it's, it's something that we have constructed. You know, capitalism isn't even in, isn't even an ideology. It's just a form of exchange but it's been blown out of all proportion and worshipped and and uh you know given the responsibility for the way that society is run when it it is and of itself doesn't really it wasn't set up to do that kind of thing you know it's our it's our decision to do that it's our acceptance of neoliberalism and our surrender of the responsibility for making a better world that allows the the free market to do that kind of thing. It's all down to us, ultimately. So then what is the role of the artist as this trend continues, the, the trend of creativity being commodified? We're now sort of in a, a, a position, sort of, you know, getting on for a century down the line, having observed it happen in different strains of creativity, and, and that rate of change, if anything, yeah. it's going to speed up. And you said even in this original form, yeah. it can be turned around very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. So, like, what, what does the role of the artist become? Because and this is, let me put forward one of my pet theories to you, if I may, Billy, brag is like that I feel that the, w- one of the ways in which the left is stymied is that the arguments particularly in this day and age lack a certain kind of uh, spiritual and emotional uh, sort of impact yeah. that it can seem managerial bureaucratic and dry yeah. and, that, and like with something like consumerism it's all about the feelings we're talking about desire we're talking about fear we're talking about you're not good enough we're reaching right down into your guts and we're dragging you into mm-hmm. that supermarket we're dragging you yeah, into yeah. that magazine that movie theater you know so how do you sort of say how do you what kind of like when you talked before billy about if you're at a gig or you're at a football match and i've never thought of this before and you see thousands of people having the same experience as you singing the same song that yeah. you're singing like and kind of like in the sort of when i've gone to say Noel gallagher's gigs and yeah. like it they're, means they're so really much good. i mean to those i mean I, you know listening to uh, oasis i never really got it i thought these lyrics are just tosh I don't get this. I saw him at Glastonbury. Everybody was singing. I was like, oh, mm. yeah. I see immediately what yeah. is going on here. I can understand why people are so drawn to this. I was drawn to it myself. It's that communal experience. My sense, to answer your question, is that as musicians, our currency is empathy. A great song can make you feel something for someone you've never seen before, you've never met, you know, and it it allows you to draw you out of yourself and take you away from those selfish individualistic feelings that that capitalism tries to encourage. Music takes you away from that. So in times like now when there's like a war on empathy, it's up to musicians to ramp that up. Now, I'm not saying this is a political thing because Adele does it just as well as as Oasis done it as I do it. We're all capable of doing it. That's what a good song song does. So we we need more of that, I think. 
think. And what, what this is all about, to just sort of try and draw a broad picture around what we were discussing about the, the decline of Marxist language, we find ourselves now talking about these terms like empathy and compassion and, you know, cynicism. This is where we are at the moment. We've got to find a way of defining those terms and, and understanding that these are the things we need. We need to live in a compassionate society. We don't need to live in a socialist society. That, to me, sounds like something you're going to have to spend a week explaining how it works. But when you talk about a compassionate... <laughs> seriously. Uh, the, you know, a compassionate society, people immediately get what that means. You know, my nan would understand what that meant. But... So we need to be talking about these, you know, broad brushstroke words now so that we can from that work out a practical way to ensure that we have a society based on those values rather one that puts weight on, you know, selfish, uh, uh, self-centred individualism. Do you think that Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders are doing that? I think they're starting to do it, yeah. I think they're reminding people of how that works. I think they're both, uh, you know aware that the, the, the way that we've been doing politics and the way that we've been doing the economy is broken and is not affecting the majority of people. But they're trying to uh, garner, I think, or, and inspire a new generation of young people to, to connect with this. But they're working, whether they like it or not, whatever they believe, they're working in a post-ideological world. You know, since the, the the Berlin Wall went down, we now live in a world in which there there is no guiding ideology for the left. There's lots of remnants of bits of ideology that people adhere to, and you know, the 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 critics of Saunders and the critics of Corbyn are constantly trying to caricature him and fit him into one of these pigeonholes. But I think it's a you know a, the the problems that we face now don't easily fit into those kind of pigeonholes. Brexit being the obvious one, you know. Here, Billy Bragg. What about that thing people are always saying that British socialism uh, owes as much to Methodism as to Marx? Do you think there could be something in that idea that British socialism has never been solely drawn from Marxism oh, anyway? Oh, has and, you know, if you go folk around, and yeah, Christian if tradition. You go, if you go and look around Europe, almost every country has a Marxist, has had a Marxist party that was in their parliament. Germany, France, Italy, Spain. I mean, all those countries, Marxism has played a, a really important part in their democracy. And to some extent, some countries still does. That's never has done in this country. Why? Why in those countries? I don't know why. But and why I, not in ours? Why not in our country? Well, there's, there's reasons for that. I think our... It's a very interesting argument, Russell, which, you know, I'm sure your listeners will have views on. But you've got to remember, the English chopped off the head of their king before anybody else. Mm. OK, the idea of how you you create a, a, a fair society was something that, that motivated the round edge during the Civil War to go out and, and say absolute you know, power corrupts absolutely. How do we how do we hold the monarchy to account? You know, people forget it was Thomas Paine, an Englishman who wrote The Rights of Man. You know, the the first fundamental and, and the the problem for the roundup is what they used that for the American Constitution, yeah, is that right? Exactly, yeah. And the French Revolution. Nicking well. our bloody and, stuff. And, but they don't teach us it in school because we're sort of almost as if we're ashamed of it. That any because he was a Republican as well, you know. Oh. And so and the civil war was before that you know they weren't they didn't even get to the issue of of individual freedom during the civil war it was more about religious freedom but also really about unaccountable power and these these issues have always been at the absolute core of of who we are as a people and methodism i would say more nonconformist 
rather than Methodism, because Baptists are in it as well. I mean, the Baptists were huge in the 18th century, and they, they refused to sit behind the squire in the Anglican church and tugged the forelock every week when they came in. So they were banished from the church and they used to meet up on the hills out in the open and sing their songs and have their own uh, uh, nonconformist uh, 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 meetings. And in many ways, you can see a thread of that organisation coming forward to the earliest trade unions. The idea of, of, you know, we ourselves have got to get organised. We can't rely on power to hand us down our, our, our rights. We have got to go and take them for ourselves. How do you hold to account those people who have absolute power over you? And that tradition, I think, is forgotten, really, by a lot of people on the left who, who, who really should be able to grasp the nettle of Englishness a bit a bit better and not shy away from it all the time. I think we have a real problem with... Um, Issues on the left like patriotism and nationalism. Well, people are thinking, oh, it's ethno nationalism. Like, as soon as if your well, patriotism you know, is racist, did you mean that? You know, anyone on the left will tell you, Russell, there are many types of socialism. Like national socialism? That was popular for a while in the 30s. <laughs> Indeed, there's green socialism, Christian socialism, right. uh, you know, revolutionary socialism, democratic socialism. Well, so my that's point the problem, is, is my po- no, my point is, there are many types of patriotism. Right. There are many types of nationalism. I'm a patriot. I love my country. I love that we have a welfare state. You know, I love the the sort of like the long green fields. You know, I love the flat the flat marshlands around the Blackwater. You know, that and the wilds of Essex. You know, I love the A13. Mm. But but also I'm a nationalist. But I'm a civic nationalist in that I believe that power is better. Uh, express the closer you can bring it to mm. people. So I believe that we should have regional assemblies in England. You know, should have devolution like they have in Scotland. You know, so the the problem the left has is it sees only one type of 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 patriotism. What type? The worst type. You know, the Boris Johnson type. That oh. we, our, our country is great and everybody else's country is shit. The worst <laughs> type. You know. uh, the John, you know, the John Bull nationalism and and uh, patriotism. Uh, and that's like in the same way the Daily Mail only sees Stalinism as the only type of leftism, you know, that any any left-wing ideas ultimately got to end in totalitarianism. No, that ain't true. That's absolute rubbish. But if we look at patriotism the same way and we won't deal with it, we won't touch it, it leaves a vacuum which allows the British National Party and people like them to, to easily define who does and who doesn't belong. If we're going to defeat them, we have to start putting forward ideas about who we believe belong in our society to try and start uh, an Englishness, if that's what we're going to call it, that is about place rather than race. You know, it's where you are now rather than where your grandfather was from. And you know, my grandfather was from Italy. You know, mm. but that you know that's does you wouldn't know that seeing me. You know, because I've grown up here in this environment with these people, and I love these people. You know. Yes, yes. In a way, it becomes about love and connection, doesn't it? Yeah, like but the, you know, it's, it's an inability to deal with these things that's left us in Brexit. You know, we haven't really dealt with our, our uh, you know, our, our historical development from the end of the British Empire. You know, because because the British Empire ended in, in a kind of damp squib rather than being, you know, destroyed like the Empire of Napoleon or the Empire of the Romans or the Empire of Hitler. Mm. We never really resolved those. Those issues well, of those of crises of identity yeah, yeah, because yeah, it yeah. became sort of a sort yeah, of a sort yeah. of like, sorry oh, you yeah, can't have yeah, India yeah, back what, sorry you shouldn't have done that oh, yeah oops a daisy keep that quiet <laughs> yeah and you know and it's kind of like it, it's it's that sort of sense that we're you know Britain is still a great country it's just not a great power and I think Brexit is partly our inability to understand that and accept that you know it is a great place uh, and a lot of, you know and a lot of people. 
I'm, I'm very happy about that and I'm part of it. And, you know, I feel common ground with those people. I don't reject people who love our country, you know, love uh, you know, traditional patriots. So I recognise that. It's just that you have to get that into, into perspective. Yeah, me too. Because I meet a lot of people that are in the services and stuff like that and they're really lovely. And, like, I like their uh, patriotism. I don't yeah. think there's anything wrong with that. But I suppose it's with this transmutation into bigotry. Now, one of the things I think these systems of categorisation are re- revealing the more that we talk is that they can be prohibitive in, like, in the, that they prevent progress. Yeah, yeah. That it's very difficult. If you say, well, this is the left, this is what the left wants yeah. to achieve. It, it, for me, it seems like it's stymied by a stance of perpetual oppositionism yeah. that it's not ever going to go we're going to actually run things now when you talk about an idea like sort of uh, de- devolution and assemblies and the closer you can move power to people the better like I watched uh, again recently because I knew you were coming on that thing where you were campaigning out in Barking and fronting that yeah. race uh, like sort of nationalist type yeah, mayor yeah, bloke yeah, yeah. Um, and it feels to me that like you say like you know that that in a way, in a sense, don't you think that many things are about politics in that many things are about power? And like, you know, when you were talking briefly about Oasis, because I, I analysed them a lot because of being friends with Noel, like that even though they are not, exp- like, you know, when Noel as a lyricist isn't going to be saying we're working people and we've got a right to express ourselves, the feeling of that is yeah. there anyway. That's the communion I was talking about that you get from being with people like yourself. That can have a lot of power. That can have a lot of power. I went to Rock Against Racism in 1978. It was the first thing I ever did, you know. March from uh, uh, Trafalgar Square to Victoria Park in Acne. And when we got to the park, there was 100,000 kids there just like me to see The Clash and Tom Robinson and all those great bands. And uh, the, the, the day itself was just really sort of changed a lot of my perspective on a lot of things but the key aspect about it was I mean I was, I was working at the time in a in a office with a bunch of blokes whose language was casually racist and sexist and homophobic you know and I was the office junior so I didn't really say nothing about it because I didn't feel it was my place but after I went on that march and there were gay men on that march I mean I've never seen out gay men before I'm sure I've met gay men but I've never met out gay men on that march and it was like I, this isn't just about people of colour this is about discrimination of all kinds and if I'm going to be in favour if I'm going to oppose racism I've got clearly these guys are real I've got to oppose homophobia as well and of course sexism as well because I read leaflets about that on march so I came with this whole sort of expanded head thing that I'd never had before that I hadn't got but when I went back to work I started to stand up to these guys the key thing to understand about that it wasn't the clash that gave me the courage and my convictions. It was being in that audience with all those other kids of my age and realising that my generation were going to define themselves in opposition to discrimination of all kinds. And that kind of gave me a real sense of being part of something. And without the music, that wouldn't have happened. I wouldn't have got that out of political meeting. So that's where the power of the music is. But remember, it was the audience, not the Clash, and Tom Robinson and the other bands that day that... that gave me the, that, that courage and changed my perspective. They got me there. They did a really important thing. They brought us all together so we could see each other, so we could clock each other and get that sense of that we're all in this together, which I didn't have before. I just thought I was on my own at work. So that's what music can do. And that's what you're talking about, Oasis. It's that same sort of thing. It's that, it's like a solid, it's a form of solidarity. You know, it's not, it doesn't, it, all right, Rock Against Racism, it was political, but even at Oasis, there's a solidarity of song that you get from all being together and having that same moment in your head where you, you, you kind of feel that you're some part of something bigger. Yes. You go back to your own little life and your own little existence, but for that one moment, it's like football. 
you exist as a as something much much bigger and you feel you're not alone and your emotions are welcomed by everybody else around you because you're in a at that moment you're at a high when you're singing those songs with the team who just scored but this is political in that there is nothing more political than the sort of post-darwinian notion that we are individual machines interested only in our individual survival, that empathy, compassion, sharing and brotherhood are irrational. When religion is discounted because of the many obvious and evident problems of uh, organised religion as an ideological source, then yeah. what you're left with is rationalism. One of the things that's come up a lot on this show is that one of the problems of Marxism is it placed economics forever at the centre of political discourse, maligning and marginalising some of the ideas that you were talking about at the beginning, empathy, unity, togetherness, yeah, yeah, yeah. where I believe that when you describe very beautifully that experience of rock against racism and other experiences I've had, whether it's been on marches when I was young yeah, yeah, and didn't yeah, know yeah. what was going on or football or whatever, and you can contextualise it as political or non-political or whatever. The fact is, is that we know that when you're at a football match, you know where that money's going, you know where that energy's going. If you're at uh, the majority of pop concerts, you know where that money's going, you know where that energy's going. So it's almost like, hap- you know, that this resource this yearning is in people the need for skiffle was there the yeah, need yeah, yeah. for hip hop was there the mm. need for punk was there the need for you as an office boy among people that were casually in, in an uneducated way I'm sure racist and homophobic it was there and then the resource was provided as you said very beautifully by the clash as a sort of a masthead as a yeah, sort yeah, of, yeah. Like, to bring it together as a transmission so I feel like now when we're thinking about what is this change around language it's almost like to transcend politics to say well what we're really talking about, as you've said earlier yeah. already, is we're talking about compassion, we're talking about empathy, and we're talking about what kind of society we want to live in. And the closer people are to power, the less likely it is that they will vote for individualistic and ultimately punitive systems yeah. that see them just as consumers, as Not fodder. Not just as consumers, but don't, don't really listen to what they're saying. I mean, my sense about what happened with Brexit and what happened with Trump is that people's lives have been made chaotic by what happened in 2008. Mm. And you know, they're, they're, they want security. Now, Brexit was all about security of borders, but my sense is if you offer people security of housing, security of job, security of health, security of borders have become quite a way down the list of things mm. that, they, mm. that their priorities mm. are. But they're not being offered that, right? No. They're not being offered the change no. that they want. The thing about Hillary Clinton, you know, as a person, fine, a political idea is fine, but a fundamental flaw was she was not a change candidate, right? No. Remain in the European Union is not a change no. option. People want change Static. now. So they're not being offered change, right? So they're angry about that, and they've got a vote, and they're going to use that vote to make your life chaotic. You, Mr. Politician, you in the centre there, you in Westminster, this is my one chance I've got to make your life chaotic like you've mm. made my life chaotic. So I'm going to unknowingly, knowingly it's going to create chaos. Yes. I'm going to vote for Trump. Because I, I know he's chaotic, and I know that, but he's going to mess up your, the way you think it is, and I'm going to vote for Brexit because you're not offering me the change I really want. And until we really do offer those people that security I was talking about and the change they want, they are going to keep voting to, to throw a spanner in the works of how everything works for everybody else. And I, and I understand why they might want to do that. I yeah, don't I agree don't blame them. But uh, I do blame them, but that's a different... That's my position. But, but, you know, I understand where that impulse is coming from. You know, because in some ways it's what happened in Barking and Dagnum. You know, they, they put in them 12 BMP councillors in 2006 because they were pissed off with Tony Blair saying, you know, the white working class has got nowhere else to go. Mm. Once they actually saw what they did those guys, once they saw that they were interested in nothing but themselves, at the next election they threw them all out again. Mm. You know, I think we can trust the white working class. You know, I was 
you know, I think that's the same people that, that put those in there. They looked into the face of racist fascism and saw it for what it is. And they chucked them all out again. And they're fin- I mean, since what happened in Barking and Dagenham with the BNP, that was a terminal blow. They mm-hmm. were destroyed after that. That was the end of it. That, they thought that was going to be their high point. So those people, you know, that, that you and I sort of grew up with, they're exactly the people that can deal with these kind of things. And we shouldn't be, you know, dismissing them or overly worrying about them, but we should be delivering the, the change and the security that they want. Yes, I agree with you. And acknowledging that what these the, the Brexit and the Trump is a legitimate impulse, anger, rage, yeah. frustration. Yeah. That's what and, it was in Barking and Dagenham. But exactly, when you said, but when you said, like you know, who gives? You know, like I agree with you. Like that, you know, if people have got secure housing, they're not going to be thinking about secure borders. It's yeah, bloody yeah. abstract and ridiculous. But like, but. The thing is, Billy, that when you describe that that roster of meaningful change, secure houses, secure jobs, whose interests are challenged when you start to offer people that, you know, like, and so it doesn't matter if you have Barack Obama, Donald Trump, well, this is the, you know, this without is where, radical systemic right, change. Right. Well, this is where Corbyn and Sanders come in and recognise that neoliberalism is not delivered and isn't working, and the system is broken. How do we how do we fix the system? You know, do we go back to the way things were before, or do we recognise that our time has changed and a lot of things are different? And do we find a new f- way of of creating the the fundamental basis of of what people need that security? How do we how do we deal with that in a modern way yes. rather than going back to how we dealt with it in the 20th century. Marxism was a 20th century product and way of dealing with it. And many of those things that you've discussed really about Marxism, you're really talking about ideology per se, I think, really, mm. whatever, left or right. right. But what has happened is neoliberalism has come, and, the, and the, the, you know, the allowing the market to take responsibility for making all the difficult decisions in society has come through the middle yes. uh, using a methodism that was never, there was never a consensual vote on that. There was no. never, we, we'll put this together. It's just kind of, it's a me, as I say, it's a means of exchange that has been blown out of all proportion. It, and what we need to do is to s- step back from that and without going back to the way we did it in the 20th century exactly, work out how we do. And that does involve those things like I talked about, about compassion and organisation. You yes. have to have both of those, Ross. You yes. can't just have compassion. You can't rely on compassion, you know, because in the end, that, that just leaves things to charity. And we know that doesn't work. No, doesn't. That's why the welfare state was built. So we need to find a way to to organise things in such a manner that the majority of people, preferably everybody, but the majority of people have access to the means by which to reach their full potential. I think that's what, when you hear people talk about progressives, that's what I think of as a progressive, someone who believes society should be reordered mm. in a way that everybody has the means, access to the means, by which to reach their full potential. Because so you and I have been very fortunate because we've escaped from what we were educated to do. I was educated to work at Ford's, and I managed to escape, but the majority of people don't ha- have that opportunity. And we need society to be reorganised so that those people who are brilliant at building cars get to build cars. Those people who are brilliant about doing podcasts about politics get to do podcasts about politics. You know, and that's complicated and it's hard. And, it, and we're it, still looking for those lads. It, and uh, you know, if you know, it, it's a you know, it, 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 you have to let a thousand flowers bloom, and it's not cheap and mm. it's not easy. But in the end, there are no utopias, mate. You know, it's not about creating that socialist or compassionate society it's really about being on the road to it and staying on that road and keep moving forward to that direction you know i will not cease from mental fight nor shall my sword sleep in my hand till we have built 
Jerusalem. It's an ongoing thing in mm. England's green and pleasant land. It's not a done thing. It's not, wow, we live in a great place and isn't it brilliant? It's like wherever we are now, you know it could be better. You know it could be better. If only the weather. You know it could, <laughs> you know, you know it could be better. And that's why, that's why I think the English left have that different space to try and move forward from you know it's a it's a deep tradition it's a dissenting tradition it's a tradition that asks all the questions that you've been asking but asking questions isn't enough and what we need to do as artists is we need to do to join the dots that everybody can see in a way that helps them have a different perspective on what's going down and but we have to leave it to them then to decide what to do with that and how to implement what they believe will be a better way of doing things Thank you, Billy Bragg. That was amazing. Now, that's a really beautiful place to end it. But I'm now going to run through things that I've done in my notes when I knew that I was meeting Billy Bragg. Class, patriotism, done it. Folk and paganism, sort of done it. Rudyard Kipling, didn't get around to Rudyard Kipling, but you just did William, William Blake. Blake. William Blake, that's, he, he's just, just Take that, yeah, take yeah, Blake, yeah, take yeah, Blake. Blake. Met the Queen, how was that for you? Oh, she was all right. You know, she asked for my autograph, do you know that? Get lost. No, she did, she did. Because first of all, I shook her hand. That was at the, at the, at the Beethoven thing. Well, she, I'd written some new lyrics for uh, the Ode to Joy at the Royal Festival Hall. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I after she'd that. gone, um, a flunky rung up, would it be possible to get a copy of the, um, the score, uh, you know, signed by Mr Bragg for the Royal Collection? And I'm like, you know, lots of people hang around after my gig to get an autograph <laughs> and shake my hand. You know, why should I treat her any different? What quite do you right, quite yeah, right. Exactly. And also, my mum was there. And there's not many things to do in my job what really impress your mum. And no. shaking hands with the Queen was one of them. Well done. Thank you. Subject and action. I don't know what I meant by that. Minor strikes we did. Uh, that Gall- uh, George Galloway moment. Thatcher death quote. I like that Thatcher death quote of yours, actually. He sort of talked about how, like, sort of celebrating the part. That was sort of, I said, mm. it's interesting, isn't it? Because I suppose a lot of what we're talking about here is nuance and gl- allowing nuance into I'll tell you what, ideological I'll tell you what it's about. And the, and, the, and the connection between the Margaret Thatcher quote and uh, shaking hands with the Queen. It's really trying very hard not to be a cardboard cutout lefty. Mm. Because when you take the sort of positions that I take, people think they know what you're going to say every time. They yeah. think they can pigeonhole you like that. And every now and then you have an opportunity to say something that totally goes in contrary to that. So shaking hands with the Queen was one of those things. That Margaret Thatcher quote, you know, people would expect me to be dancing for joy. You know, yeah. I played a gig in Belfast the night she resigned. You know, I've still got some of the adrenaline from dancing for joy in my body, still going around my body. So I, don't need, I don't need when she died. You know, it was that was a different thing. And I think if you're gonna um, if you're gonna take a political stand, you have to be very very careful that you don't allow yourself to be pigeonholed, so that everyone can tell every time something happens that they know what you're going to say. There's a real danger in, or I think there's a real danger yes. in that. So when I have the opportunity to actually say something that I believe rather than what someone expecting me. So the last time I went on any questions, the producer said to me, I didn't think you were going to answer that question. I said, well, yeah, you know, that's, that's why I answered it a different way. Like you said, it's nuance. It's trying to get nuance in there because, unfortunately, life is full of bloody nuance. It's, you know, it's kind of like sometimes you're having to cut through it like a jungle nuance to get to where you want to get to <laughs> to do anything. Uh, and life isn't all black and white. So if you put yourself up as a black and white lefty, you're, you know, you're, you're running for a fall every time, you know? Yeah. All right. Thank you. It's been like the point of this podcast was to for me to get educated. So that's been a very uh, educational. You know what? What, what year? Uh, Rock on and I was in the charts now, don't you? Well, actually, I'm not so good with like knowing. Oh, yeah, that I do. I have picked up. Yeah, I think you said fifty-five. 
close. Oh. <laughs> that, that was ITV, but yeah, I'm glad. <laughs> Fair enough. Educating Russell. You should change the name of the programme. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a long, long series. Thank you, Billy Bragg. Thank you, Russell. Cheers, I enjoyed man. it, mate. Thank you. That was lovely. That was brilliant. This show is sponsored by my new book, Recovery. Pre-order your copy by going to russellbrand.com. And if you like this show, please subscribe and review it in iTunes. Please only give five-star reviews because less than that hurts my feelings. Thank you.